So it's it's said that uh, the Dharma is uh, the the middle path. The Buddha described a path that um, uh, found the kind of avoided uh, the extremes of self indulgence on the one hand and self-mortification on the other. And he said, um, said the, on the self in, self-indulgence is vulgar and lowly and uh, was dismissive of that. A life of just chasing pleasure after pleasure. But he also said that a life of self-mortification of in a sense, asceticism without a purpose, um, causing pain to oneself for the purpose of causing pain is also an extreme to be avoided, unproductive, unworthy of the wise. And so he charted this middle path between two unwise extremes. And often when we think about our Dharma practice, we think about finding the wisdom in the middle. But interestingly, um, the Dharma is also about finding some middle, some reconciliation between wise extremes. Yeah? So in this sense, um, it's, it's not merely of avoiding unwise extremes, it's actually also um, finding wisdom amidst uh, wise extremes. So as an example, um, compassion, yeah, a kind of undisputed uh, value and uh, if that is the the caring about suffering is not also paired with an equanimity and a respect for the limitations of our wishes in controlling the welfare of other beings it can become unbalanced There's talk about uh, this kind of found, you know, foundational insight into uh, anatta, not self, the emptiness of self, the impossibility of taking refuge in self-identification. But there's also this other side, totally wholesome, that begs us to love ourselves. There's the kind of urgency of our spiritual pursuit, samvega, a kind of something that, that longs, longs for a different way of being in the world on the one hand, and then there's 
relaxation and ease and not turning ourselves into a huge self-improvement project, on the other hand. And ultimately, it's your job to find your way through, to find your way through unwise extremes and wise extremes, to improvise your way through to uh, um, more and more freedom. And it's not really something we can specify. It's not something, at least that Brian and I wish to specify, to say, this is how you thread that needle. Yeah. It's more like uh, you experiment and see. And maybe over time, some kind of reconciliation between these various wise extremes unfolds. And so um, tonight and tomorrow, we, um, we're staging a kind of debate. I like calling it a debate. Brian does not like that term. <laughs> I like it because it's so absurd. <laughs> uh, like, <laughs> we're not, really fighters, (laughs) but we're going to debate. No, it's, um, it's a debate in the sense that we're presenting different sides of this, this question about wise effort, but the word, you know, that word debate is absurd, uh, because we could very easily switch sides and neither of us wants to win anyway. But there's something that felt appealing about actually just laying out some one side and then another perspective and not tying it all up you know, as one of my friends, uh, Vinnie Ferrara says, not, we're not going to like tie it all up in a neat Dharma bow. Yeah. You are entrusted to find your way. Yeah. Maybe you gravitate towards one side or another, or you find some kind of reconciliation, some way that actually works for you. And then you go. The evolution of this path is is to become uh, to become independent in the Dharma. That's a phrase one of my mentors uses often. Independent in the Dharma. So. Um, We'll frame this issue around effort, urgency, relaxation, in terms of um, of a, a, a sutta, the uh, 
Oga Tarana Sutta, the disciple says to the Buddha, um, tell me, dear, dear sir, how you crossed over the flood, how you freed your heart. And the Buddha replies, I crossed over the flood without pushing forward, without staying in place. But how, dear sir, did you cross over the flood without pushing forward, without staying in place? And the Buddha replies, when I pushed forward, I was whirled about. When I stayed in place, I sank. And so I crossed over the flood without pushing forward, without staying in place. So I want to uh, represent this side of, um, it's sometimes called Samvega, and uh, often translated as a kind of uh, urgency, a kind of spiritual urgency, and a sense that it mobilizes a great deal of effort, a great deal of resolve and dedication that uh, fuels us through the vicissitudes of practice, this sense of urgency. Some, at some point, often the heart catches on fire and it's like awareness becomes a deep priority. Uh, a mentor of, uh, of, of ours, uh, Gil Franzdahl, translated some a very early, what's thought to be early um, suttas, early discourses from, from the Buddha, uh, the Atakavaga. And when, when Gil uh, talked about this passage, he, he commented how struck he was, how touched he was by the Buddha's like, um, self-disclosure, the disclosure of fear, the disclosure of a certain kind of dread. So the Buddha says, um, just see how many people fight. I'll tell you about the dreadful fear that caused me to shake all over. Seeing creatures flopping around like fish in water too shallow, so hostile to one another. Seeing this, I became afraid. This world completely lacks essence. It trembles in all directions. I longed to find myself a place unscathed, but I could not see it. Seeing people locked in conflict, I became completely distraught. But then I discerned here a thorn, hard to see, lodged deep in the heart. It's only when pierced by this thorn that one runs in all directions. So if that thorn is taken out, one does not run, 
and settles down. We may get into this path, into this practice of looking inwards for many different reasons. And the reasons that bring us to the path are almost always smaller than the reasons that propel us on. We get into the path with a kind of, often like um, a compartmentalized sense of what this path is, what practice is. And the hope is maybe like, all right, I'm gonna add the Dharma to my life and it's gonna make my life a little better or maybe a lot better, but it's, it's an addition to my life rather than a deconstruction of everything. But when the path becomes like the transformative path is, is animated by deep questions and deep longings and a willingness to uh, let go of the smallness of our imagination of who we are and what this path might be. And, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a, uh, have been involved and I'm a long-term, you know, supporter of um, secular mindfulness. But one of the risks in that, in that realm is that sometimes mindfulness is posed as uh, something for nothing. Yeah. And this practice is not something for nothing. Says uh, Tanisaro Bhikkhu. Samvega was what uh, the young prince, you know, Siddhartha, the the Buddha-to-be, felt on his first exposure to aging, illness, and death. It's a hard word to translate because it covers such a complex range, at least three clusters of feelings at once. The oppressive sense of shock, dismay, and alienation that come with realizing the futility of life as it's normally lived. A chastening sense of one's own complacency and foolishness in having let ourselves live blindly. And an anxious sense of urgency in trying to find a way out of the meaningless cycle. Buddhism's not only confident that it can handle feelings of samvega, but is one of the few religions that actively cultivates them to a radical extent. Its solution to the problems of life demands so much dedicated effort that only strong samvega will keep the practicing Buddhist from slipping back into their old ways. Now, sometimes, uh, sometimes we develop this kind of urgency only when, after 
tragedy or a major loss, you know, or those, those moments when it's like the ego is all out of moves. But we actually don't have to wait till that moment. Sometimes what unfolds in the heart is the, the kind of, the, the urge to understand suffering becomes uh, more primary than the urge to avoid suffering. And in a sense, we start caring more about awareness than we do about how our life is coming along. I had a, a, an early, early teacher who was very strong on this point. Um, and he would say, um, do you want to keep rearranging the furniture in your dream or wake up? And a lot of our spiritual path can be rearranging the furniture of our dream. And so, uh, so there's a place to celebrate this kind of like the urgency of effort, the urgency of effort. the willingness to um, just forgo our preferences, dive in. That's one side. So now the other side. (laughs) And I'd like to begin uh, by sharing with you my own experience of of Samvega and and what happened around that, because I think it it showed me I was really on one side of this this poll that that Matthew was talking about, that there was wisdom in it, but it was so extreme that I was forgetting the other side and balancing out with this this quality of receiving and uh, softening that's so important. And it was when I was a, a monk in the uh, Rinzai Zen tradition. And it's important to remember, like Rinzai Zen, it, it, it is the embodiment of Samvega, of this urgency, this, this, um, this I- extreme urgency in terms of that. Like so much of the teachings are around um, uh, to put a heroic effort in continually. So for example, the, the regular schedule for me when I was a monk, um, during our training periods is you'd get up at three o'clock in the morning. So the bell would ring at three o'clock in the morning. And then you'd have 10 minutes to get on all your robes, robes and get on time to the meditation hall. <laughs> and then uh, you would go to sleep usually around uh, 9.30 at night. And so that was kind of the, the regular day. If you had a job, if it was the winter, and for example, there was uh, 
uh, uh, one position, the shoji, and it had snowed the night before, then your job was to shovel to make sure this very long trail from the meditation hall to the sutra hall, the chanting hall, was cleared. So that means that you would get up earlier, usually at 2 or 2.30, to shovel for everyone. And then sometimes you would stay up later so you wouldn't have to shovel as much in the morning. So that means you would sometimes go to bed at 10 or 10.30. So you wouldn't be getting much sleep. <laughs> and this was the spirit of it. It was, it was to, to, to practice fully in terms of this. And it was the, the Rahatsu session, which was the session that commemorated the Buddha's enlightenment. Um, uh, the, the, was, um, you would usually get up instead of at three o'clock in the morning at two o'clock in the morning, extra effort, and then go to bed usually at, at around 10 or 11. And then if you, had, if you were a monk, if you were ordained, you're expected to do something called yaza, which is means, means that you would stay in the meditation hall after the meditation hall closed um, at least a little bit to at least fulfill your duties. <laughs> it was intense. <laughs> okay, it was crazy. <laughs> <laughs> but also when I began to practice and uh, when I was a younger monk, is using Matthew's language, my heart was on fire with, with the practice. I had, I had dropped out. I was I dropping out a, a society in a big way. Um, I had no intention at that time of kind of coming back and getting a job and paying the bills. And so there was a lot of Samvega. And I remember about a year after I was ordained, uh, hitting this wall in my practice. And, and it was such an interesting wall because what I realized is that there was this habitual tendency driving this spiritual ur- urgency. And it was like this feeling that of just this deep feeling of unworthiness and that something was wrong with me. And my idea was, is if I practice hard enough, then I can stop being the person I don't like and become someone else. And hopefully that someone else is someone who's enlightened or awake or at least somebody different than me because I was sick of me. And I put a lot of that, that energy into my spiritual practice. And there was that hitting that wall of noticing that. And what I noticed in it was a particular form that this took, which was that I would be practicing hard and then maybe I had to have this, this sweet space of, of deep mindfulness or deep samadhi or a heart filled with compassion. And I'd be like, ah, this is it. You know, this, is, this practice is working. But then what would happen is then there would be less mindfulness, the mind would get scattered, or I'd get irritated with one of my brother monks, which happened a lot. (laughs) Or um, I felt dejected, and then it would be like, damn it, something's wrong with me. This isn't working. And I'd put forth the energy, I'd get another hit of mindfulness or samadhi or kindness. And then if that would start to crumble, then I would crumble. And then I was back in in the dredges again. And then... So do you hear the hamster wheel of practice? And it, it can, this can be such a hook in terms of practices. It can be fueling our, our spiritual practice in some kind of manner. Uh, uh, way. I was on the hamster wheel. I was desperately doing the practice to hopefully become somebody. Somebody other than me. So the Buddha had a word for this, dukkha. (laughs) 
And it fits in with the word that Matthew used too of this, this self-improvement project. I wanted to improve myself. And of course, I, I want to point out that the aspiration to have, uh, uh, to, to cultivate mindfulness, to cultivate compassion, the aspiration to, to open our hearts, those are beautiful aspirations. So I'm not trying to diminish those aspirations or even the, 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 the aspiration for full awakening. I don't think that's the, the problem. The problem was how I was holding it, how I was construing it in my own mind. And that experience of Samvega, of noticing what was underneath it, I, I, I noticed that I needed something else. And this was this, this quality of softening, of receiving. In terms of softening, I think this is why uh, the Brahma Viharas became so important to me. To begin to soften the heart around me. Soften it through what we've done so far on this retreat, through the practice of loving kindness. The repetition of beginning to actually start to like myself, to love myself. It's such an essential component to what we're doing here. And also opening up the space for self-compassion. Because when I love myself, it's very easy to have this quality of, of self-compassion. The heart softens. And this was essential to start to, to, to really address some of what was fueling my spiritual practice in an unskillful way. To really bring in these qualities. And not only the softening, but the receiving, the receiving of experience. Because what I noticed on a subtle level too, and I noticed this when I switched over to Vipassana, is that I was reaching out to experience. I was trying to grab for something through, through my spiritual practice. I was trying to grab onto the breath. And the way that started to unravel a little bit was to have the sense of beginning to simply receive experience to find a different place to reside, to abide and to, to make my home in being aware. That that's the place I would rest. Like what comes to mind is this Pali word that's uh, used, actually it fits in with the Brahma Vihara, Vihara, or it comes from the, the verb Viharati, which means to abide. And there's something about abiding and, and loving kindness, but also to abide in being mindful. And uh, the Zen Master Dogen has, I think, really beautiful words for this, or uses a phrase. And this comes in his, uh, a fascicle of his, an essay of his called the Fukun Zanzengi, which is, the, the Fukun Zazengi is a, um, an essay about instructions for uh, meditation, for Zazen. Zazen is very simply, Za is in Zafu, what I'm sitting on, which is, just means sitting, or Zabatan, something I sit on. And then Zen. Zen is Zen. <laughs> so sitting meditation. And this is part of his instruction. He said, you should therefore cease from practice based on intellectual understanding, pursuing words and following after speech. And instead, learn the backward step. 
the backward step that turns your light inwardly to illuminate experience. And so for me, so much of this practice is learning the backward step. What is the backwards, backward step? How do we begin to get a feeling, step, a feeling sense for, for stepping backward rather than stepping forward in our practice? And it's so simple, the backward step. And it's so immediate. The flavor of the backward step is, for example, right now, hearing how the sound of my voice arises and passes away. The backward step is the immediacy of feeling the body right now as you're sitting. The backward step is right now receiving the feeling of the breath, just as it is as the sound of my voice arises and passes away. Can you feel the backward step? Sometimes it feels like, ah, I don't have to do anything. I just need to notice right now. And do you get a feeling sense for how much effort it takes to notice what's going on right now? How much effort does it take to hear the sound of my voice arise and pass away? It's like none, right? It's just there, just receiving that. Feeling the hands touching. Does that really take a lot of effort? That's the backward step. I step forward so much that I miss what's going on right now. Even to notice if there's a thought right now or an emotion, there might be a feeling of sleepiness or agitation or calm or discomfort right now. It's just the noticing of that. And as Dogen says, that's the backward step that turns our light inwardly to illuminate experience. So it's really just that, that simple. And when I share with you the backward step and how simple it is, I'm not saying that we stop doing things in our life. You know, there's a place to plan and even to think about our lives at times. There's a place to interact and figure out problems in our lives. But if that's where I live, boy, that's a drag to live there, merely in figuring out and planning. There's something so narrow about it. Yet when I find my home in this backward step of simply being aware, it allows me to relate to being a human being in such a radically different way. So again, it's these, these two qualities of softening, softening the heart towards ourselves and learning to receive experience moment 
after moment after moment. And this is where the, some of the effort comes in, is the willingness to receive moment after moment after moment. It really takes that, that continuity. And, it, and the image that I bring to mind around this is for the, the skillful effort on this, this side of things is the continuous flow of river water over rocks. Water flowing over rocks, river water. It's so soft, it's so yielding, yet continuous. And that softness, that yielding quality that's so continuous, it can, it can smooth the sharpest of rocks over time. So that's this side. That was good. (laughs) I'm going to momentarily join Brian's team, but then I'm going to come right back. So to join Brian's team, um, you know, I'll, I'll take, um, I'll take curiosity over discipline any day. So much of this practice unfolds from the the sincere curiosity to look, what is this? What is this? What is this life? What is this suffering? What is this love? What am I? And it's like we can't we can't manufacture that curiosity, that sincerity, and trying to force it, trying to just be sort of militaristic with how we practice. Um, can sometimes, as Brian talked about yesterday, like like just be reinforcing some of the aversion. And uh, I I I feel like um, we do have to summon. Uh, con- you know, great energy to to work with the forces of of craving and aversion. That at some level, the path of least resistance is to act out greed, aversion, and delusion. Yeah. Do you, do you know that that feeling? That sense of like it would be easiest, you know? It's sort of like the biological momentum is pulling me in the direction of greed, hate, delusion. And to actually uh, 
take a stand, not a, a moralistic stand, not one, a stand that blames ourselves, but to actually take a, a, a stand and mobilize the kind of energy to withstand the, the gusts of greed, hate, and delusion without living according to their dictates to sort of absorb the, the body blow of those energies as they ride through. That takes, um, I'm finding over the years of my own practice, like we can't underestimate how much courage and energy, strength that can take. The, the Buddha describes um, anger this way, but we can actually describe a lot this way. Um, but said anger with its honeyed tip and poisoned root. We have to let go of the honey. And who wants to let go of honey? But of course, this renunciation is, it's, as, as uh, Matthieu Ricard said, like to give up something that is the cause of genuine happiness would be crazy. We're uh, actually relinquishing forms of happiness that do not lead to the completion of the heart for forms of well-being that do. So I'll, I'll, I'll hand it back to, uh, to Brian for uh, some final words, but I, um, you know, I, I sort of um, like leaving it without actually integrating the two sides. What might this be? What does it mean to neither push forward nor stay in place? What does it mean to neither whirl about nor sink? What does it mean to um, to have to honor the deep longing for freedom but not um, try to cling our way to peace.
So just in ending, I, I, I'm going to move into the middle a little bit here rather than <laughs> just hanging out in the, in, the, in the softening and receiving. But to take a step back and again, in some ways, again, not uh, tying the bow, but, but bringing the context within which this not pushing forward and this not staying in place uh, resides. Because sometimes when I hear this kind of the poetic power of of, of that, um, it can sound so special in beyond the life that I live. And and I want to bring it down to the ground, to our lives, to our lived lives, uh, because I think that's where freedom resides. And often, uh, at least for me, and I, I, this is also a trap I, I, th- I think that we find even in, in Buddhism where, where freedom is, is somewhere out there, it's not here. It's not in my life, it's in someone else's life. And I like to read books about it, but that's never going to happen. But to show that th- these openings into a different way of being, a different way of living, happens in the midst of our, of our ordinary lives. And you find this kind of um, this value in in Zen, the the, the great ninth uh, century Chan master um, uh, Teishan Tokasan in, in Japanese. He said, "What is known as realizing the mystery, realizing awakening, is nothing but breaking through to to grab to embrace an ordinary person's life." So what does that look like to embrace the ordinary person's life? And so I'd like to end with a poem. It's a, a poem by Marie Howe, and it's, it's a poem entitled, uh, What the Living Do. And she wrote it for her brother. Her brother, she was very close to her brother, and her brother died during the AIDS, AIDS epidemic. And she wrote it during a, a really a, a very uh, tumultuous time in her grieving process, and she was going through these, these periods of just, just writing letters to her brother um, as a way of, of navigating some of her grief. So this is one of the, the letters that she writes to her brother, and his name is Johnny, so she, she uh, um, uh, begins with his name, speaking to him. She begins, Johnny... The kitchen sink has been clogged for days. Some utensil probably fell down there. And the Drano won't work, but smells dangerous. And the crusty dishes have piled up waiting for the plumber I still haven't called. This is the everyday we spoke of. It's winter again. The sky's a deep, headstrong blue, and the sunlight pours through the open living room windows because the heat's on too high in here, and I can't turn it off. For weeks now, driving or dropping a bag of groceries in the street, the bag breaking, I've been thinking, this is what the living do. And yesterday, hurrying along those wobbly bricks in the Cambridge sidewalk, 
spilling my coffee down my wrist and sleeve. I thought it again and again later. This is what the living do. And even when buying a hairbrush, this is it. Parking, slamming the car door shut in the cold. What you called that yearning. What you finally gave up. And we want the spring to come and the winter to pass. We want whoever to call or not call. We want a letter, a kiss. We want more and more and then more of it. But there are moments. Walking. When I catch a glimpse of myself in the window glass, say the window of the corner video store, and I'm gripped by a cherishing so deep for my own blowing hair, chapped face, and unbuttoned coat that I'm speechless. I am living. And I remember you. I know for me, sometimes there is still this hope that I'll escape it all. But that's not the point of practice. The point of practice is to be here in the midst of all of that. The clogged sink, the heater that doesn't work. And in that, taking the back, backward step and actually opening so that our hearts can open in a different way in this world that we live in. So let's sit just for a minute here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.